My guest today uh, is a man who brings a sympathetic but critical eye to liberalism, and I'm deliberately very keen to talk to him because, in a way, he, he brings what is, I think, a wide-ranging wide critique to liberalism to force. It's David de Cavello. He is executive dean at the university, of, uh, in, the, in the faculty, I should say, of uh, education, philosophy and theology at the University of Notre Dame here in Australia. David, welcome. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. I, I decided to invite you when I read an article you wrote in the um, Australian, following on an article written by our own executive director here, um, mm. uh, Tom Switzer. But uh, in it, you said Tom was complaining about the way the world is, and you said that's all very well, but he hasn't gone to the heart of the problem. Here's what's wrong. It's not just a recent problem. It goes back 500 years. And your critique really is saying liberalism is unbalanced or gone too far. So let's, let's explore that together, shall we? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Well, by, by firstly, uh, what is liberalism as you understand it? Oh, well, terms? you could ask 10 different uh, people and you'll get different, 10 different answers to that. Uh, I think you, you could uh, basically divide liberalism into sort of two camps, if you like. Um, and one, what we might refer to as right liberalism, um, which is um, based on the classical texts of, uh, of Locke and Hobbes and, and the others who were writing about the social contract uh, all those hundreds of years ago, that basically said that uh, individuals should be as free as possible to, um, to dispose of their own uh, life, limb and property uh, as they see fit. And that, that as far as possible, anything that stands in the way of that uh, should, be, should be eliminated as far as possible. Uh, and both of them uh, construct a, a theory of the state, a political theory, which has uh, the, the state as a protector of those rights in one way, shape or form for the individual to, um, to basically live the life that they would like to lead. Um, and that has manifested itself in one uh, direction, uh, in the economic sphere, uh, uh, in support of the free market. So for example, as I said in my article, uh, you've got um, uh, you know, the Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, which provided the intellectual underpinning for free market capitalism. Uh, and uh, that has, as I said in my article, led to an enormous boon and explosion of wealth and opportunity for so many people over the years. Then there's what I might call, uh, refer to as, um, and others have done this, not just me, uh, Patrick Deneen, for example, in the United States refers to left liberalism, um, which is not so much in the economic sphere, but in the, what we might refer to as the cultural or um, social sphere where the individual becomes uh, a person who is completely self-determining, um, what we might call a very thin view of the human being who uh, uh, emerges from the womb as if they're emerging into, into no kind of society, no kind of family, and are completely free to... Because the focus is, in t is I I emphasizing individual autonomy yes. and freedom to choose as the very key point about humanity. Ah, yes, correct. Before we talk about why, why that's not Mm. What's wrong with that, from your point of view? Mm. This liberalism in the 18th, 17th century, mm. basically 17th century, came as a reaction, that's fair, mm. to the way the world had been thousands and yeah. thousands of years. Yeah. What was the reaction against? 
Well, I think um, to sum it up in one word, we would say hierarchy, okay? Both um, social political hierarchy and uh, ecclesial hierarchy. Church hierarchy. Church, church hierarchy. So uh, I talk about in my article um, in uh, the Reformation, which led to many good things. Um, uh, so you're Anglican, I'm Catholic, so we're a good, uh, you know. Uh, we both had Reformation. Exactly. But uh, we both, um, you know, have uh, lived in the world that I think Luther, um, you know, in nailing his 95 Theses to the, to the Wittenberg Church, um, did start giving expression to a view that um, the individual has kind of more direct access uh, to the divine than the Catholic Church was uh, that was willing to concede. Uh, but not only that, but also in the political and social hierarchy with the you know the um, the medieval uh, feudal system. But more than that, underpinning that, there was a kind of a, a view of the way the world was, particularly the natural world, that it was. Uh, um, fixed in time, uh, and that um, we would uh, we were just subject to its forces. Um, so and nature had a hierarchy. Over nature, uh, yeah, exactly. So nature was constraining us in other ways as well. So not just human forces, but constraint and divine forces, uh, but natural forces were um, constraining us, and we had to find a way of living within those constraints constructing a personal and social cultural life within those constraints. One of the big changes, apart from Luther, was that another change that I mentioned in, in my article, which was um, the scientific revolution, when you know led the charge led by Francis Bacon was saying, no, we don't have to accept the limitations of nature. We can torture nature. Was, Is that a word? Was, absolutely. We can torture nature to extract its secrets. And once we have its secrets, Knowledge becomes power, uh, and so uh, in that in that context, um, this was a whole kind of sweep of movements and coalescence, convergence of of movements that said we, the the autonomous rational human being, can make the world a better place. Uh, we don't need, you know, these hierarchies uh, to control. Well, um, has it done pretty good? It's done in a world of good, if I can put it that way, as I said in my... In I mean, just my look at how to go. I mean, the remarkable growth of yeah. human prosperity, of safety, of knowledge. Yeah. It's It's been an astounding growth. Yes, yeah, no, exactly, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. Uh, but I guess what uh, the point of my article was saying, well, in that process, has it all been, you know, unidirectional in terms of uh, uh, inevitable progress on all, in all aspects of society. Uh, and I think, you know, the article that Tom was pointing to and that many people, you know, would, I think, uh, agree with, that there, there has been a kind of a, a decline in social trust in particular. Um, and we might come back to Fukuyama that you mentioned as we were talking before the recording started, because he, no, the first book of... I'm gonna raise him. Yeah, the first book of, of his that I, um, read was uh, the book called Trust, and it was about the importance of social relationships, social bonds, for creating an environment in which wealth can be created through, you know... Well, let, let, well, can, let me go to the critique first. Yep. You, your, your main critique, therefore, is, mm. you've said how wonderful this is, and yet, mm. what's wrong with it is, yes, in a phrase... Uh, in a phrase, the bonds of society have been loosened to the point where individuals now have 
lost their capacity to understand the world within a social context and, and it's leading to a crisis of meaninglessness. Meaninglessness and mm. social cohesion. Yep. 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 And, and you say this is because the emphasis upon freedom and in fact, I think you say that the freedoms, the, there's an issue about what actually is freedom. I think there's yeah. a stake in your critique. Correct. What, 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 yeah. what, uh, so uh, there's, it's a complex argument. I'll try and keep it simple. In the scientific revolution, a lot of people have given up their belief in God because they believe that science has demystified the whole world, right? Um, but in giving up that belief, uh, what, I think there's a, probably a pivot point in the 18th and 19th centuries uh, where the breaking down of those uh, of the social cohesive um, and community building aspects of religion uh, was forcing people, if you like, or encouraging people to take a much more individualistic view yep. about their about um, the purpose of life, which is just to uh, acquire as much stuff to consume as much stuff as I, I can, and that led to um, uh, a breakdown of social trust. Yeah, that's a bit unfair, isn't it, um, to, I think in modern terms, to um, express my authentic self, to uh, to be the best me I can be. Or yeah, yeah, so... Right? It's this, not just about acquiring. And, no, 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 yeah. but this is a good question about what does, or what does the authentic self mean? Um, uh, so, for example, when I was growing up, you know, there was a famous Coke ad. I don't know if you remember these. And they had a jingle, you know, be what you want to be, do what you want to do, or maybe it was the other way around. But it was very 70s in that sense, um, on the tail end of, you know, the sexual revolution. Sense of freedom. Yes, a sense of freedom. Um, but what, I, what I'm getting at in this week is what is true authenticity? True authenticity is uh, when you are making decisions that are based on your understanding of what is true and what is good okay and that your your decisions are based on what is true and what is good now one of the things that i think has happened is that we've lost any um mechanism for determining what is true and what is good and therefore and, choice becomes essentially arbitrary in your yes exactly we define our own truth we define our own sense of what good is and reality is seen as fundamentally meaningless unless we yes. give it meaning is that yeah so we've just got to create our own individual space within that now a lot of uh, people would say we just have to face up to that reality that's essentially the existentialist argument of people like Camus and and Sartre that says yes ultimately the world is meaningless and we have to have the courage to face that fact yes um, whereas I think um, myself and many others would say no, well, that's not actually the case. Um, the human beings have been um, created, if I can use that word, uh, by a creator that has uh, endowed us with a drive towards truth and goodness. So uh, you, your critique is it's fundamentally religious critique? Uh, well, I think it's a bit of both. It's certainly coming from a religious perspective. But I would say that even those people who... Uh, claim to be, let's say, either agnostic or atheist or secularists, um, operate in the world uh, as if they had um, free choice. Now, uh, this might sound odd, but there is a strong body of scientific opinion 
that says, actually, everything we do, even this conversation, the next word that comes out of my mouth has been determined by scientific processes. And that, in fact, the actions that we take and the choices that we make actually involves an illusion of choice, right? right. And so that is the, if you like, the hyper-rationalist position, the hyper-scientific position. But if you ask the ordinary person in the street who would sign up to say, yes, no, I don't believe in God, but yet you believe, I believe in science, they might say, oh, yes, and but science tells you you actually don't have the capacity to make choices about what you believe at all. Well, that's a philosophy. Science itself doesn't, can't make a judgment on those matters. No, no, no. But people make judgments on whether they're going to believe in God or not, for example, based on their view of what science tells them. But science is that the, there is a, a substantial body of scientific thought. Uh, and there's a recent book out called Determined, uh, you know, on this topic that says... Um, Every action that we, we take um, has actually been predetermined because of previous decisions that every other person around the world has made and what the decisions that were made by them before, before, before. So it's quite a depressing kind of um, view of uh, humanity as nothing more than a collection of uh, atoms and molecules operating uh, at the behest of scientific or physical that, forces. That, that may be the case, but liberalism itself doesn't take a view on these matters. In fact, mm. this is a point made by Francis Fukuyama in his more recent book, Liberalism and Its Discontent, mm. that one of the values of liberalism was how to cope with the problem of pluralism. Yes. And it wasn't for nothing, I think, that the liberal thought in, in England occurred after the Civil War and the, uh, the Commonwealth mm. and elsewhere, that after the wars, they weren't just wars of religion, that's overstating it, but the wars of ideologies that occurred mm terrible wars in the uh, 17th century. Mm. And so instead of having a society where we all agree about the big questions, liberalism mm. says, we will not, we, the big questions are your private decision. Mm. We as a society will only deal with process questions. Mm. Yeah, freedom. Uh, that's choice, right. right. That's essentially and, uh, a good summary. Uh, whether but, there's a God or whether there's a, what, what good is, that's entirely up to you. Now, isn't that an answer to the problem of violence, political violence and pluralism? Yeah. Except when you come to the view that it's actually my view is that I can't tolerate your view anymore. Uh, and where does um, where does we stand on that? So liberalism would say, no, well, you, you can't exercise your intolerance of another person's view. There are limits um, to how you can act. And that's the kind of thing that we probably should be hanging on to, this concept of limits, this concept of that's standards, right. and we should never let that go. But the question is, well, how, how do you actually form those standards? Where do you draw the line? How do you draw the line on, on what to do or what not to do? And I think this is where um, liberalism doesn't have an answer to that question. No, in fact, we understand this. Liberalism deliberately, at least in its classic form, mm. I'll come back to what's gone wrong more recently, shortly, mm. in its classic form brackets the big questions, the theological, the philosophical questions, and just goes on process, which means that it must be by definition an incomplete view of life, unless you want to say the big question is individualism is, true, is the only most important thing. In other words, if you, if you make human choice the most important thing about life, mm. 
you will then have all the problems you've talked about, meaninglessness, arbitrary, arbitrary decisions, freedom, do what I like, but since whatever I do doesn't really matter, mm. it's not real freedom. So therefore, there's a, there's a paradox here. For liberalism to work, there needs to be something thicker than just mere belief in choice. And yet, yeah. how do we get that without mm. some sense of compulsion? I mean, because we're living in a pluralist society. That's right, and I, I think um, there. Are, what's the What's the answer? Well, I think David. People, this is where I think we have to try. And I, in my article, talked about trying to re-engage the conversation between faith and reason, because um, this is where I think we can rediscover um, this thicker version of what a human being is, and therefore what freedom is. Um, the human being is not just a collection of um, atoms and molecules operating, you know, at the force of uh, at the force of nature. We are born into communities. We are formed by those communities, not determined by them, formed by them. And uh, but and as we grow older, we become able to critique those communities and perhaps create new ones. Uh, but uh, you know, we've I think we are at a hinge point at the moment where almost we've gone too far down the slippery slope in a sense, uh, you know, to be able to recover that sense of the human being actually should be exercising their freedom within the context of community. And also, you're right, in the context of what is true and what is good. Mm. Uh, true freedom, you say, is freedom to act in, in line with what is good, not just simply pure choice. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, which sounds... Sounds good, um, and is our society? How many? How much have to have in common to make that work? Um, I, you talk about religion, and I'm for it actually. Mm. I'm for it, but I don't see much hope in a Western society of reaching deep consensus on these profound issues. Uh, I Does think, that mean, in a sense, liberalism's problems are inevitable. Then, well, I a shallow understanding of human beings. Yeah, shallow. Yes, but I, I wouldn't want to go so far as some crit critics of liberalism have gone to say to give up, for example, on the democratic project uh, and want some kind of return to, um, you know, aristocratic hierarchies. Yes, they're, like, they're, I notice in some of the critiques, particularly coming from um, Roman Catholic scholars, mm. called integralism, mm. an effort that we should go back to the world in which the state determines what is the good mm. and acts in that way, which strikes me with with horror, because I mean, it'll mean persecution, yeah, undoubtedly, because we have it never stays determined to tell its people what's good, what yeah. the good is, rather. Mm. Um, so, uh, and that's not got much traction here in Australia. I know in America there's been a conversation about almost returning to a medieval view of church to state. Yes, well, no, I, well, I think there's that's seriously a problem. I think my, you know, my aspiration would be, and I think this is the aspiration, is that we can create a conversation, a public conversation, create a cultural social milieu in which people are actually able to exercise their democratic freedom responsibly. Now, what's depressing about so many of the public debates around in, in democracy at the moment, you know, we get to vote every three years, for example. That's the, the premier way we exercise our democratic right. But let's take, for example, the the current um, debates around tax reform. Now, I'm not going to give a view on that, but what I find depressing about the debates is it's all done 
the headlines on all the papers is who's winning and who's losing at the individual level, right? Nobody's actually asking the question as well, are these changes uh, better for society as a whole? For the community. For the community as a whole. Uh, And you can debate that either way, right? But the whole notion that um, uh, our political leaders uh, just have to be sensitive to uh, voters whose only interest is in their hip pocket is a bit depressing. Um, uh, notwithstanding that there is a, you know, you and know probably, cost of being crisis. Um, unrealistic. Well, this is where I don't think it is unrealistic to be able to say, can we create a, 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 a milieu in which people do start to think um, more about what's good for the community? Um, and that means having to have a discussion about, well, what does the word good mean? more broadly than my self-interest. Well, let, let me be, um, raise a ton- phenomenon of classical liberal, of liberal societies and really is intolerant mm. and a lot of interest in good. I think you say that the Western world, in many ways, is freedom has been eclipsed by great concerns about inequality and discrimination mm-hmm. and, and, and reaction to the fact that liberalism was often associated with colonialism. Mm-hmm. The liberals, right? The liberal societies. Now, this this seems to me does have a sense of whether right or wrong, mm. a strong sense of what the good is, true, what truth is. Yes, and therefore, in one sense, is illiberal in in a way which might not be good or bad. But there it is. Yeah. Now, what what do you make of that? I it's a very good point, Rob, because um, uh, what we're seeing in a lot of these movements, you know, whether it's Me Too or um, Black Lives Matter or uh, Occupy Wall Street, they are all underpinned by an inherent sense of what's right and what's good, okay? Now, but a lot of um, the the people involved in those movements uh, and uh, would say, well, if you ask them, well, where do you get that, where do you get that moral sense from? Where do you, how is it that you arrive at these judgments? And so it's clearly unfair. Well, unfair according to what? Yes. Uh, um, and this is a problem that I was trying to allude to before, that it was actually Christianity that actually gave the Middle Ages a sense of what was right and wrong. It, yes. And as the scientific revolution stripped away credibility from the church, as a lot of other things have done in you know recent decades, stripped credibility away from the church, um, what was happening at the same time was that the idea that there was some objective notion of truth and goodness was also beginning to, to wither away. And so people are left with this inherent drive to do good and to you know and for justice, um, but it's it's if you ask them, well, where does that come from? They they're at a loss. <laughs> touch on a very important question, and one of the themes of uh, this liberalism question podcast has been to examine the question of whether certain things like human rights, yep. which, are, which are very strongly part of the liberal worldview, whether they are absolute or whether they're actually historically contingent. Mm. Uh, um, and I suspect you're saying, without some deeper grounding mm. in reality, if it's just arbitrary choice, 
human rights are no more real than um, um, unicorns. Yes. Well, I uh, believe them, but there's no, they're not based in reality. Well, as you'd be probably aware, Jerry, Jeremy Bentham, the famous utilitarian philosopher whose view of the common good was simply the greatest good for the greatest number, he described rights as... Greatest monst- happiness, greatest number. The greatest happiness, even worse. Um, <laughs> how do you define happiness? Uh, he described rights as nonsense on stilts. Um, but if you are... But I do think, and as, again, there's something I alluded to in my article... The concept of human rights, you know, emerged over the, the 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 first half of the last century, in response to how do we find secular language to give expression to what we know somewhere deep down inside us, is is right and good, uh, and that was the language that you know yes, people. But my, my, but my point is um, mm. that we didn't all agree that or take for example that everyone should be treated equally. Mm. This is a taken for granted of Howard. This is not commonly held in in the past. It wasn't held in uh, mm-hmm. in Greek and Roman days. It's not held in other societies. In other words, there's a remarkable, fragile u- contingency about these things. I think, um, again, we, we could get into debates about what the word equality means. Um, everybody being treated equal uh, is different from what I think is the uh, perhaps a better... No, we'll, we'll put it differently. I mean... Equal, yeah. the, the, the equal dignity of individuals. That's, that's what I'm talking that's about. Yeah, okay. Which is a foundational ground yes. of liberalism. I'm just simply saying Aristotle wouldn't have believed that for a moment. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm just simply saying. Mm. And therefore, these views do have a contingency. That is, they depend upon a certain history, a yeah. certain background. They're not just obvious to everyone, yeah. although it may feel obvious to everyone mm. if you're inside it. It's a very good point, Rob. But if I could just give a slightly um, paradoxical example, if you like, when you look at um, uh, St. Paul's letter to Philemon, who's a great friend of his, but he's writing to Philemon to say, can you please accept um, uh, the slave who escaped from you, Onesimus, uh, accept him back as a brother in Christ. And so what Paul's alluding to um, is saying, look, the way of the world in terms of its secular structures, you know, creates masters and slaves. Um, but underneath that, there is a deeper reality that needs to be recognised, that we are all created equal. With my, equal my point is yeah. that that was a revolutionary claim. Yes, it was. Which, took, which has taken hundreds of years to work its way out. I think right. I think it was the historian Tom Holland, who I follow in these matters, said uh, mm. this writing is like a depth charge that blows out, and, and that's the nature of yeah. the way the world's moved. As I understand it, your critique is take away the deeper understanding, liberalism is in trouble and therefore we cannot simply have liberalism by itself. Correct, correct. It needs to be, and this is where I think Francis Fukuyama is kind of nostalgic because he's defending a liberalism that doesn't exist anymore. Although he does does say, how can we find a way to thicken? Correct. To to not just have individuals but community to have. Yeah. Okay, well, my my final question, David, Mm. is this. are you hopeful or despairing? Are you optimist or pessimist? Uh, well, I'd say I'm a realist, Rob. Uh, so Everyone says that. No that's what they are. Well, <laughs> uh, no, uh, if you had to say what side of the realist line am I, I'm, I'm an optimist. Um, I have to be an optimist um, uh, because, uh, you know, again, going back to your uh, illusion before that my critique is a uh, religious critique, it's certainly informed by a faith in the goodness of people. So because... Right in the image and likeness of God. 
So you're confident that, that uh, despite liberalism's weaknesses, they will not be fatal? I am. I wouldn't say confident. I am hopeful. Thank you, Dan. My guest has been David de Cavella, who is uh, the de executive dean in the uh, University of Notre Dame here in Australia in the uh, Faculty of Education, Philosophy and Religion. I'm Ron Forsyth. Thanks for listening to, thanks for watching, listening to Liberalism in Question.